Good morning. My name is Ronald Curhan, and I would like to welcome you to the Belmont Story Project. This morning, I am going to interview my wife, and you will see that she has an extensive Belmont experience. I'm a professor of marketing at Boston University, and I'm sure that we can work our way through this task together. Hello, my name is Joan Sidney Pocross Curhan, and I have had the pleasure of living in Belmont since 1939 uh, when my family moved here from a rental house in Newton. Uh, and uh, I was two years old at the time, and uh, uh, my brother Bill had just been born uh, in in the year that they moved. So in 1939, my mother looked around for a house, and she had picked out Belmont because they had one set of really good friends who lived on Marsh Street and wanted them to move here as well. And um, <clears throat> they, uh, she found um, a house, 125 Rutledge Road, on the corner of Rutledge Road and Clifton Street, that was only two years old as I was at the time. And uh, it, the house belonged to Judge Gray. Uh, he was a judge. Uh, actually, uh, his courthouse was in Arlington, uh, Massachusetts, and the courthouse apparently was really in a tavern at that time and it turned out that um, they were rebuilding um, uh, into a new courthouse and so he was offered the beams the beautiful hand-hewn beams in uh, brown wood um, from the courthouse where he presided to put into his new living room and that is where they went so um I do remember the moving day when I was two, again in 1939. Uh, my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, Anna Kahn, uh, was um, babysitting for me, and uh, we walked around the neighborhood, which she herself had ne never seen before. And she was complaining, I later learned, I didn't quite absorb it at the time, that we were moving too far away from Brookline, where she lived, and Newton, where our rental house was. And basically, she called us the pioneers. Now, um, <clears throat> uh, sorry, at, at the time we moved there, uh, there was lots of woods behind our house, which was pretty exciting for exploring. This, was, this became Beatrice Circle. And um, we would play, we and, the, and I and the neighbors would play, uh, going to visit these houses as they were being constructed in the early evenings when the workers had already left. I doubt if you could do that today. Later on, we rode our bikes um, in the neighborhoods. Uh, and, uh, and later on, I used to take the tea uh, from the house, walking over to Route 2 um, to Boston um, on my own when I was in high school and maybe even junior high, and I doubt I would have been allowed to do that today. My parents um, entertained a lot at the house, and um, amongst 
uh, their friends were a number of refugees from Vienna uh, whom they had brought over, my father had brought over to the United States by signing um, perhaps 20 or 30 affidavits with a client and good friend of his, Hans Sachs, who had already immigrated here from Vienna. And these were people he knew, mostly Freudian psychoanalysts, some of whom had worked directly with Sigmund Freud. And so once they got here, it was my mother's role, she felt, to have them to dinner very often and also to get to know their stories and to help them find houses, help them find schools for their children, uh, furnish the homes and, and that sort of thing, which she was really good at. And my mother and father became fast friends uh, with, with the psychoanalytic group. And subsequently, my father became the lawyer to the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute, whom, uh, whom many of these people whom they brought over then uh, became belonged to. Um, I also, um, at the age of probably three, was sent to Mrs. Mrs. Hazeltine's nursery school, which was in Mrs. Hazeltine's school uh, house, rather, on Fletcher Road, a stone house as you go from Clifton Street on the left-hand side with a brook running behind it. And I can remember playing outdoors in her backyard with the brook behind us. It was just a very bucolic and beautiful scene. Uh, then um, I was sent to the Belmont Day School uh, in sort of uh, nurse, nursery or pre-K. And all of a sudden one day they said, oh, we're adding a new grade at Belmont Day School. It's going to be called Transition. And I was one of the people selected, I guess maybe I was slightly older, to go into transition. The next grade would have been uh, the first grade. However, World War II broke out at that point. And I do remember living in our house in Belmont um, just before my father entered the service. And that was uh, what I remember is my mother going to um, the Underwood Ham uh, factory and putting on some sort of a hairnet. And uh, as a volunteer, she helped to can ham that was then going to be sent to our boys overseas. And um, I also remember the air raids in the neighborhood when we had to um, all uh, gather in my parents' bedroom when there was a siren that went off. And we had to, to uh, put dark curtains, which we already had set up, to, to draw them in all the windows so no, no light could show through. And we sat there with our flashlight on um, until we were given the all-clear sign. It was a little bit scary, but it also was kind of interesting and mysterious to me as well. Well, then in um, uh, about 1941 or two, I guess, uh, my father uh, signed up, he enlisted in the Navy, uh, and uh, he had always been um, a sailor, uh, owned with some friends a sailboat, and um, so the Navy was a natural thing, and he just felt that he should sign up and to do his duty. So um, wherever he was stationed, uh, which was in three different states, um, we moved with him. So at that point, um, my parents rented our house. We put all our belongings in just one bedroom and locked the door. And other than that, the, the family had the run of the house. And um, at that point, I attended six first grades. 
So we moved quite a bit. First, I, I, I went to, I think I went to first grade locally, but then we moved to um, Virginia Beach. Literally, we lived right on the beach, and I went to a French-speaking school there. Uh, and then we moved to Staten Island, New York, where my father had the night duty to look for possible German submarines in New York Harbor and drink lots of cups of coffee. Uh, and I went to another school there. And finally, we went to um, Osborne, Ohio, a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, which is now called Fairborn. Uh, and there I went to the Bath Consolidated School um, and that was in the second grade and also in most of the third grade. Uh, I won't talk a lot about that because I really want to focus on my experiences in uh, Belmont. But I would like to say that um, my um, father uh, uh, be became an outstanding, and this was mainly after the war, became an outstanding lawyer and uh, senior partner of Peabody, Brown, Rowley, and Story, a Yankee law firm in Boston, where he was the only Jewish person admitted to begin with, and they didn't, they didn't allow any Catholics, and they didn't allow anyone who hadn't graduated from the Harvard Law School, which he had done in the beginning, but he basically uh, changed, was able to change those policies so that others could be admitted to the law firm as well. He also had an outstanding career as a member of the community uh, in the greater Boston area, uh, heading up a number of nonprofit organizations, serving on the boards as well of others throughout his entire lifetime. Uh, he passed away when he was just two months short of the age of 97. And right up until that time, he was doing wonderful things and trying to help other people. Uh, and uh, my mother was a frustrated social worker. She always wanted to be one. Her parents wouldn't allow her to do that. So she had to go to the Prince School of Retailing at Simmons College instead, but she wasn't interested in retailing. So uh, she basically was a volunteer. I remember particularly for the League of Women Voters in Belmont. I also remember that my parents instilled in us um, a real passion for volunteering at very young ages to, to help other people in need. In particular, one of the ex early experiences right after World War II was that my mother participated in two fundraisers for Smith College for the Financial Aid Fund, and she sent my brother Bill, William Rodman Pocross, uh, born in 1939, and me up and down the street, ringing doorbells, selling carnations, uh, and also another year um, selling tickets to a magic show, which would be held at Belmont High School, again, to uh, benefit Smith College. And those values of community service have, have played a very prominent role in my life uh, ever since. So um, when we returned, um, Bill and I were sent to the Winbrook School uh, in Belmont. And my fondest memory, this was, by the way, um, in, at the end of the third grade and the beginning of the fourth grade, we were there. Uh, or, and um, my fondest memory, not so fond at that time, was that someone who became a really good friend of mine, but at that point I didn't know him, and he sat behind me. So his name is Bill Griswold. His father, Erwin Griswold, at the time was the dean of the Harvard Law School, 
um, but I didn't know any of this. And I had long braids, and he dipped my braids into his inkwell. Uh, we all had quill pens in those days. We had penmanship lessons, um, dipping our, our 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 pens into the into the ink and and writing sentences that we were told to to uh, do from the blackboard. And instead, he dipped my braids into his inkwell, and I went home. <laughs> with plenty of problems with black ink on my dress. But uh, later on, we became incredible friends. And even um, he, he liked me as a girlfriend, too. Uh, and to this day, we do keep in touch, even though he's now moved out of Belmont. Um, in those days, we used to go in the wintertime skating uh, on a frozen pond at the Belmont Hill School. And um, they allowed neighbors uh, during the weekends to go on this pond. And it was a real neighborhood uh, activity where we got to know so many other kids and really had a wonderful time outdoors. Um, in the fourth grade, my uh, parents sent me to the Belmont Day School for the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades. And the sixth grade uh, uh, was the highest grade in those days from which I graduated. That was also a very nice experience. And then I attended uh, Belmont Junior High School where Mr. Ventura was the principal. It was quite different, uh, quite quite a bit more regimented, but I... and but I really liked it, and I stayed there for the 7th, 8th, and ninth grades. Um, I do remember that um, in the 7th grade, I attended Miss Keeler's Dancing School, um, which was held in the Unitarian Church right here in Belmont. It was a fabulous experience, and I attended with many of my friends, and I went for at least two years to that dance class. It was the social event of the year, no question about it. And um, afterwards, uh, if you were fortunate, a boy might invite you to go out for an ice cream sundae with him um, at Brigham's in Belmont Center. That was really, really something we all aspired to. And um, two boys seemed to like me, Bill Griswold and Tommy Mostrom. They both at that point went to the Belmont Hill School, um, as did my brother Bill at that time. And one day, uh, one night, one of them invited me to the Brigham's, but I was in a carpool, and the mother who was doing the carpool wouldn't allow me to go, so I came home crying to my father um, that, I, that I was really angry that I could not accept this invitation. So I also want to say in those days at Belmont, uh, High, Belmont Junior High School, um, I joined a Girl Scout troop. Um, because people I met there in my homeroom and so on um, invited me to join their Girl Scout troop. I had been a brownie at um, the Winbrook School for a short time. And that, anyway, being a Girl Scout in Troop Number 40 in Belmont with Mrs. Dorothea Prescott as our leader was an exceptional experience, which I will never forget. So I stayed in that troop from the seventh, starting in the seventh grade, right through the 12th grade. And there were only about maybe eight or 10 girls, and most of us stayed on right through high school. We were an international troop linked with a troop of Girl Scouts in the Philippines. 
Uh, the other thing that was, was a great influence on me was actually my brother, Bill, and the Belmont Public Library, which at that time was housed in a lovely, cozy building on Pleasant Street, which is now um, part of the, um, the town hall complex, and I think maybe it, it houses the school department. Is that right? Superintendent. It's a superintendent's office. Oh, superintendent's office. Uh, okay, so it's for the public schools now, but in those days it was very small and and very welcoming, as it still is very welcoming. And um, also uh, in the lower level was the children's room where I regularly went. I was an avid reader, so I went every week to return my books and get new books. And I, I developed this huge love for that library and libraries in general as a result. And one day when I had um, a research paper to do in Belmont Junior High, my brother, Bill, two years younger, uh, asked me if I, if he could teach me how to conduct research in the Belmont Public Library. And I said, I would love that. So we went to that little building. <laughs> and this time we were on the main floor, more the adult level. And he showed me how to do literature searches through um, various... Um, uh, I want to say P-A-I-S, whatever that stood for. There were various uh, volumes that you could, each one had a, a year on the volume. There was also, by the way, the New York Times as well. Uh, and you could look up your topics and it would refer you to articles. And then you could go and actually get the articles from magazines and newspapers and read them and use, you, use them, quoting them for your research projects. And this had a profound influence on me. And uh, when I was a senior in college and didn't know quite what I wanted to do for a job, a friend suggested um, that she wanted to do research and herself for a job. And I said, that's it. That's for me. And this harkened back to the days when my brother Bill showed me how to do my first research projects. Of course, I did many more since then. And my love of libraries. And from then on, I, I really was a researcher as much as, much as in addition to other, other things that I did. And I'll come to that a little later. Uh, I also want to say that in the um, I wanted to go to Belmont High School, which started in the tenth grade. Indeed, I took the went on the bus and went to it at the beginning of the tenth grade. But my parents were hell bent on my going to the Cambridge School of Weston along with my brother Bill because uh, what they detected on a trip that we took out west the summer before was that I was getting all A's, I was memorizing the material, mostly the tests were true and false, but when they started asking me questions about places that we visited on our trip that I had also studied, I really didn't know how to respond. And they said, well, you have to learn how to think for yourself. So we're going to send you to the Cambridge School of Weston. I protested, but nevertheless, I did go there. Um, in once it started two weeks after I'd started attending Belmont High. So I went for the 10th, 11th and 12th grades, taking the train from Belmont Center to the Kendall Green stop. And, um, and then they would have a bus that would take us uh, the short distance, just a few minutes to, to the school itself. And I really loved that school. And it was really the making of me in terms of, of really learning how to think. Unfortunately, they didn't believe in tests. So I, I, I uh, had a lot of trouble with tests in, in uh, college. 
but nevertheless. So when I went back, when I went to college um, in 1955, graduating in 59 from Smith, my mother entered um, uh, uh, the social, a social work school. It was actually the Boston University School for... School of Social. So, no, the School of... It was in the ed school and any, oh, rehabilitation counseling. And she did it slowly while I was in college. And then when I graduated, she got her dream job, which was as the social worker for the Boston Guild for the Hard of Hearing. And she stayed in that job for many years. And that's the kind of thing that she really, really wanted to do. Um, Just a word about my mother. uh, And that is that, she, she loved her job. She loved helping people, but particularly channeling in it rather than, than volunteering for a number of different organizations, helping the hard of hearing. And this is a story I would really like to share with anyone who is listening to this. And that is that, and my mother only let me know after she died, she left her story for me in a folder on her desk, along with her resume, which I didn't even know she had a resume, and her obituary, which she had written, just leaving out of it the day of her death for me to put in, trying to make my life easier. So here's the story. Um, So she was at the Boston Guild for the Hard of Hearing, and she got the idea that it would really help her clients if um, television programs could be captioned for the hard of hearing. And in those days, you could go to Channel 2, WGBH, um, and one day a week, and you could pitch your idea to a producer. So she went, and she got in line, and right ahead of her was Julia Child. And Julia Child and she had been classmates at Smith College and very good friends for years and years thereafter. They would have lunch together along with Kitty Galbraith, who was married to John Kenneth Galbraith. They were all in the same class. So the first thing that happened was Julia, with a frying pan in one hand and a dozen eggs in the other hand, she pitched a show on cooking to the producer. And what she did, of course, was make a number of concoctions uh, for him to view uh, with, with her eggs and her frying pan. And at the end of it, he said he was sold and that uh, he would, yes, he would like her to have a program. It was that in, informal. <clears throat> on uh, WGBH. Then she said to my mother, Muriel, uh, Ruth Kahn Pokros, I am going to stay and watch you pitch your idea since you were here when I pitched mine. And so she did. And the producer said, well, it's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure we want to do it. And Julia stood up all six foot, uh, six foot tall she was and said, look, you just accepted my cooking program. I want my cooking program to be captioned for the hard of hearing. And that has since been confirmed by uh, WGBH to be the beginning of captioning on television for the hard of hearing throughout the United States, which is is, uh, where it's spread to. So um, then uh, returning to me after I graduated from Smith College, Um, I got a job um, 
interviewing pregnant women at the Children's Hospital in San Francisco. But the study, uh, the funding from the study was uh, taken away after six months. So I returned to the Boston area and started working at the Harvard Business School in in basically a dream job as the research assistant on a four-volume anthology, The World of Business, um, published by... uh, subsequently published by Simon & Schuster. And uh, in due course, I met my husband, Ronald Charles Curhan, in the Boston area. Um, I continued to work at at Harvard for 47 years, starting in 1960. And first, several of my jobs were at the Harvard Business School, where I was for maybe around 14 or 15 years altogether. Um, During that time, I I took uh, a slight uh, uh, detour and worked at Arthur D. Little in market research, and they were on Acorn Park in Cambridge. Uh, They now no longer uh, exist, but at that time, they were the largest um, consulting firm in the United States. Uh, And um, we... um, uh, were w- when we were married, uh, Ronald and I, in uh, 1964. So in in one more week, we will have been married for 52 years. Um, we uh, rented an apartment in Watertown, uh, and when I became pregnant with our daughter Jennifer, who was born in 1968, we just before she was born, we looked around for a house, and we bought a house in Belmont at 83 Village Hill Road. And apparently, we were the first young <coughs> family with a young child to live there in years and years. And as soon as we returned from the hospital, with Jennifer, our daughter, uh, the women of the neighborhood lined up at our front door. I've never seen anything like it. They were so excited to have a baby in the in the neighborhood, and they all came bearing gifts and their best wishes. And it was it was really a sight to behold. Now that house we did buy from a family I knew um, and had gone to the Belmont Day School uh, with that family. Uh, now. Um, in 1970, Hughes. Hughes. Go ahead. Hughes. Yes, Hughes, the Hughes family, H-U-G-H-E-S. The father's name was Norman Hughes, and I had gone to school with Patsy Hughes and Betsy Hughes at the Belmont Day School, and I also knew their younger brother, Fred Hughes, who worked at the Harvard Business School in the mailroom there. So um, he was the one who told me Uh, that the house was for sale, and we were able to buy it um, directly through a closed bid at a uh, bank, through a bank. So we moved in there with Jennifer. Then uh, three years later, almost three years, two and three quarters, Jared was born in 1971. And I do want to mention that when Jennifer was first born and we then moved into the house, at that point, my grandparents, who were very beloved to me, Anna and Sam Kahn, who lived in Brookline, and many times we lived with them during World War II when my mother was looking for the next rental for us as my father moved around. So what I did was, um, exhausted as I was from getting up in the middle of the night with Jennifer, we had a lunch luncheon party for my grandmother and grandfather's best friends. So we had about
about six or eight people to lunch. It was really um, a lot of work on our part because we were tired and we needed to do the cooking, but it was one of the most rewarding experiences. And I do have some photographs of her, of my grandmother's friends admiring Jennifer, and my grandparents just thought they just couldn't imagine anything nicer than that. And I was so happy to do something special uh, for my grandparents. So um, I, I also wanted to say that I worked full-time at Harvard in the beginning, of course, but then once um, Jennifer was born, um, I asked, this was very unco uncommon in those days, I asked if I could please go part-time um, for the first few years or so, and I was told I could. So when most of my friends stopped working altogether and stayed home with their children, I never stopped working, and so there was no problem re-entering uh, the workforce. Um, subsequently, the children went to the Shady Hill School and BB&N, and then on to Harvard College. Um, and I, but I do want to say that um, when they were still in grade school, um, I have been so struck by uh, Miss Keeler's dancing class at the Unitarian Church that I approached the Belmont Music School. It was called that then, not the Powers Music School, but Ellen Powers was the head of it, and subsequently it was named for her. And I asked them if, if I did all the work and raised some money for it, would they be willing to start a dance class at the Unitarian Church? And um, after some discussion, they agreed to do it. And so both of my children attended with all of their friends. We always had a problem getting enough boys to dance with the girls. It was more popular with the girls. But nevertheless, uh, it worked out really well. And um, we did raise some money for it. And of course, they charge money as well. And we often chaperoned, but took turns with the other parents of children in the class. Uh, and, and the dance class continued for three or four years. The first three years, I actually ran it, and after that, turned it over to someone else for a year, and then I guess it, it stopped at that point. Um, then I want to um, talk briefly about um, how we happened to come upon our present house, which which uh, is at 85 Somerset Street. So I had always wanted, since I was um, in the um, sixth, fifth or sixth grade, I always wanted to live on Summer Street in Somerset. Belmont, Somerset Street. And, um, and the reason was that I used to ride my bike there from Rutledge Road for my piano lessons. So my piano teacher came to Somerset Street to one uh, the house of one person taking lessons, and she gave lessons to all the Belmont kids that particular afternoon. And that's how I became acquainted with Somerset Street. Also, in the springtime, I was allowed to ride my bike to the Belmont Day School, and um, I always cut through um, Howells Road and Somerset Street because it was so pretty. So finally, we had that opportunity. Uh, so Ronald and I um, approached a family um, uh, called, uh, well, Robert Pitcher, actually, and I had gone to school to the, with the Belmont Day School and Smith College with his daughters, Emily and Lucy Pitcher, and what he said was, well, if we ever decide to sell the house, we will let you know. And so uh, one year later, we heard from him. He said, I want to sell my house, but I want to sell it 
directly to you and I don't want to go through a real estate agent. And he told us the price and we said, okay, we'll buy it. And we were extremely fortunate to be able to buy it. Uh, property, uh, nice property in Belmont, well, particularly on Somerset Street, was very hard to come by. Um, there weren't a lot of senior uh, places to move to as there are today. And so a number of people just stayed in their homes until the day they died. Uh, and we were very, very lucky. So basically, I call it the house that Ronald built. So Ronald, although an engineer, then in the supermarket business, and then a professor of marketing, as he said, at Boston University, was also a frustrated architect from Carnegie Mellon and his undergraduate days. So he basically designed the house and went every day, every single day, to meet with the builder also, he was able to purchase um, some of the items directly in order to save money, such as the bricks for our house, which were handmade from a place uh, that made them in um, right near the Poland Springs Hotel in Maine. Um, and also, he was able to, to have the septic system put in himself and um, made it uh, double the size that was recommended so that we wouldn't have any trouble, hopefully, in the future. And so far, so good. Uh, and um, now I want to report that um, to our great uh, delight and amazement, our son, Jared, who is um, a professor at MIT Sloan School teaching negotiations, um, lives at 183 Somerset Street. He and his wife, Katie, now have three children, Hannah, who is um, almost 12, Joshua, who's nine, and David, who is two and a half years old. And then they have a puppy named Sophie. And one of our greatest joys is having those children run down the street. Their dad calls first to say they're coming with their dog, and they come to visit us. Uh, and that is such a great pleasure for us to see them close up, growing up, which was the case with my mother and father and with my children, Jennifer and Jared, uh, who were very, very close. Uh, and also uh, all lived in Belmont. Uh, our daughter, Jennifer, lives in Bethesda, Maryland. She has five children, including twins, uh, and she um, <clears throat> graduated from the Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School. Jared received his PhD at Stanford in social psychology. And what I want to say in summary is that life is very good um, we are so happy to be residents of Belmont. It is so much a part of our lives in a very positive way. And I want to thank you very much for this opportunity, and I want to see if Ronald has some questions and comments. Well, you uh, preempted most of my questions in your monologue, but let's get back uh, and go back. I think there are a number of places where we can uh, bring a little more light and color to this uh, to this interview. Great. First of all, <clears throat> we are now in uh, the Belmont Public Library in the Claflin Room, and it is May 16th, 2016. May 16th, 2016. So if that puts, puts this in perspective, you'll see that Joan's story is going back uh, to the 40s, the 50s, and uh, and, and on to the present day. What I would like to ask is, um, aside from the fact that Bill 
Griswold dumped your braids into his inkwell. <laughs> if you can tell us a little more about one or two of your friends from Belmont while you were going to school at that time. That's a great question. Actually, I had some fantastic friends, and a number of them are still very close friends. And just the era that you're talking about, well, really it started with Miss Keeler's Dancing School in the seventh grade. Um, I had um, a wonderful group of friends from um, Belmont Junior High and that dance class, and we started having parties at our homes in Belmont taking turns and at these parties we had kissing games and our favorite games were post office and uh, another one was spin the bottle you can imagine you spin spin a bottle in the center of the circle and whomever it it, it pointed to that person had to kiss you and uh, so um I, uh, I had mentioned Bill Griswold, as you say, um, but one day uh, when I was, um, I guess, in the seventh grade, it was Christmas morning and the doorbell rang and I couldn't imagine who it was. And I opened the door and there was Bill Griswold and Tommy Mostrom, the two boys from the dance class who were now at Belmont Hill and were a part of these kissing games and these, uh, these parties. And each one had a present in his hand and, and gave it to me, said, Merry Christmas. And I couldn't believe it. And I opened it up and each one had given me a little hand carved statue of a dog, different kinds of dogs, because Bill Griswold, who had visited our home quite a bit, had noticed that I was, I love dogs and I've, I've had seven dogs in my life, including with you, our beagles and our Afghan hound, um, before the beagles, um, and he knew I loved dogs, and so he he told Tommy he must have told Tommy Mostrom about it, and they each bought me a hand carved dog, at a gift shop in Belmont Center, and brought it to me for Christmas. And I want to tell you that was one of the proudest moments of my life. And um, I also want to say that amongst my friends, um, one of them was Elizabeth Donovan Yim. She lived on Kenmore Road, and we got to know each other um, through Belmont Junior High and through the Girl Scout troop. Um, and, and subsequently, when her grandmother passed away on Juniper Road, her family moved to Juniper Road. My very, very closest friend from those days remained Sheila Holst Liedebor. She entered my life in the sixth grade at Belmont Day, um, and um, then we went to Belmont Junior High together. After that, we uh, went to different high schools for three years, and then we were at Smith College for four years together, majoring in the same thing, namely American Studies. And as you well know, Sheila and her husband, Willem Liedebor from Holland, um, you and I visited them on our honeymoon and, and, and other times in Holland. And fortunately, when Williams, Willem retired from Phillips of Eindhoven, um, they moved here. And we, some of our greatest times now is, is uh, spending um, evenings and afternoons with uh, Sheila and Willem. Often, by the way, we go to the Boston Symphony Orchestra rehearsals together. And uh, you have been active at the Boston Symphony. You are right. I am an overseer at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I, I uh, 
did my uh, three terms that you're allowed, and then I was elected an overseer emerita. And just recently, every three years, you come up again, and they decide whether to keep you or not. But they decided to keep me this year for the next three. And with you, I have the pleasure of serving on the archives committee there, where our family endowed the archive space. So it's the Wasserman, Pokross, Curhan um, space in the archives, and um, also serve serve on the plan giving committee. Right, and Joan and I have taken uh, these uh, sort of public service jobs um, very seriously, and we have <clears throat> not only put a great deal into them, <clears throat> but clearly we've got a great deal out of them. <clears throat> Another. Uh, uh, notable uh, commitment that you have made, and I also, is that we have been active at the Nutrition Roundtable of the Harvard School of Public Health. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thank you for the reminder. That is that is a large commitment of ours. So uh, the Nutrition Roundtable uh, is a group that helps to support the Department of Nutrition and, and Professor Walter Willett, who just celebrated his 25th year as chair of the department. Uh, and I myself was asked by Walter uh, for, two, for a two-year term to chair the Nutrition Roundtable. And that was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. And we learned so much uh, from the experience of hearing um, the latest cutting-edge research results from the professors in the department at meetings twice a year, often before these findings have been published. And right now, um, I remain on the steering committee, and you remain very involved with the Nutrition Roundtable itself, and we've made one wonderful friends uh, through that. Mm-hmm. And you uh, gained a neighbor and a classmate along the way. Cargman. Cargman. Really? Don, okay. Well, next door to my parents, the Cargman family lived. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? They okay. Moved in, right. Yes. And so Donna and I, 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 she was already at the Cambridge School of Weston, but when I went there, she was there, and we went to Smith College together, and we're very close friends with that particular family. Um, I'd also like to mention, you've reminded me of it, um, as, a, as a volunteer now, since I retired in um, 2009, um, I volunteer at a number of places, and you've already mentioned two of them in particular. Um, we have also taken on um, the, the co um the co-chair of the grandparents campaign at the Belmont Day School, where our granddaughter Hannah is in the sixth grade. Um, But I do want to mention that probably my favorite of all my different jobs at Harvard, at the Harvard Business School, at the Kennedy School of Government, now called the Harvard Kennedy School, and uh, and then my final position, I, I think I loved my last position the most, and I still volunteer for it now. Uh, and that is, um, I was the first director of a brand new PhD program in health policy at Harvard uh, for its first 20 years. And the program is joint between the medical school, the School of Public Health, the business school, the Kennedy School, the law school, and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. 
through that experience, um, students who were undergraduates came to me and asked, well, you're doing all this for graduate students. Can't you do something for undergraduates? And there, and as a result of that, um, a certificate program in health policy uh, came to pass, and I was the director of that. I started it with a professor in the economics department, David Cutler, and um, now it has become formally a secondary field in global health and health policy, uh, a minor at Harvard, and actually it is the most popular minor at Harvard. So that has been very satisfying to continue to work uh, on a pro bono basis with the undergraduates as well as the PhD students. And I get all kinds of notes and messages from Joan saying, I'm going to Harvard Square to meet with three of my students and I'll see you later in the afternoon or whatever. Um, going back also a ways, uh, I, I should bring up the fact that while Joan was at the Harvard Business School for her first 12 or 15 years of the 47 she worked at Harvard, she was not only doing the research for the world of business, that new anthology, but she co-authored three books of data at that point. Joan, tell us about that. Thank you for the reminder, Ronald. Um, well, that was also a fantastic experience. So I was the uh, research associate and really um, ran um, a, a research project funded by the Ford Foundation called the Multinational Corporation at the Harvard Business School. Raymond Vernon was the professor in charge. And I w became responsible for, uh, amongst other things, in managing the whole program for, um, for all the research on the 187 U.S. corporations uh, in our multinational enterprise project. And we, it was also extended in future years um, to non-U.S. Uh, based multinational enterprises. A great, great job. And um, so that's where my library research skills came into play. I hired, as Ray Vernon called it, the Gremlins. These were Harvard undergraduates on the college work study program. Um, to do and, and showed them how to do library research, and they compiled histories of these uh, companies, corporations, and subsequently uh, we, we, we were able to get them into the corporate headquarters to show what we had gathered, um, enticing them with the fact that we wouldn't want to have incorrect information about your companies, and so could you help us fill in the gaps? And they were fascinated, and they, they, no one ever said no to us. Every company uh, of the 187 U.S.-based multinational corporations let our students in. Um, I trained them in interviewing as well. Uh, and um, it, what was so nice was that in a number of cases, they didn't even know the histories of their co own companies in the detail that we had gathered. And they were fascinated um, to be able to, to know about that. And this points up the fact that you said you were a research associate. Typical of Joan's experience, as I recall it, is that whatever she did, they never had a title for it. And they always invented and came up with uh, a new nomenclature to describe what she did. One of those was research associate. And uh, uh, I think it fit very well. They had associates in research, 
they had, had visiting associate in research because they said because they said I was a woman. Um, I could not be a research associate, which is really what I would have been. And instead, um, the dean, uh, the academic dean of the Harvard Business School, George Lombard, at that time called me in and he said, we simply can't give you the title of research associate. And no women were admitted to the school as students. And there basically were no women faculty members who were tenured at that time either. So he switched it around to visiting associate in research, nicknamed VAR. And uh, the funny thing is that the Harvard Business School newspaper the Harvest picked it up and said I was a visiting professor from Arthur D. Little, where I had just worked prior to that. And um, that was pretty impressive, more impressive than my my actual title. I think at that time I was at the Harvard Business School where I received an MBA. And then 10 years later, with Jones urging and help, I went back and got my doctorate. But uh, at that time, some of my fellow students had seen this release in the newspaper, and they were all coming up to me saying, I didn't know your wife was a professor here. And of course, that was not true, uh, but I had a wonderful time uh, with the comments. Um, could, could I just interrupt for one second? This wonderful George Lombard, the academic dean, did something really fabulous, and I didn't realize it at the time. He put me on the faculty payroll, and um, and so this was in um, 1960, the beginning of 1965, and from then on until my retirement in 2009, and 2009, I, all that time, I was actually a member of the faculty on that payroll with their retirement plans. And I didn't realize in the beginning what a gift he had given me, but he, it sure was wonderful. Well, the gift showed up after Joan's retirement when one day uh, Harvard called her up from the personnel department. And they said, by the way, we didn't know you were on the faculty uh, uh, payroll and we just found that and corrected the error, and we got a hands, handsome and magnificent. And we owe you a little over $100,000. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's a commentary on the difference <clears throat> between the run-of-the-mill, uh, I don't want to call them that, but the regular uh, uh, female uh, staff at Harvard and those who have a more favored position. Uh, in Joan's case, it came to $100,000 plus in back pay, and who knows what other uh, situations Not, not actually were. back pay, but that was, um, I was on the retirement plan, but they had, um, there was a special office for the faculty, by the way, uh, handling their retirement funds, the investments and so on, and they were the ones who actually realized the mistake. But not only was it $100,000, but all those years I was on the retirement plan of the faculty, and I received so much more money uh, than, uh, th than uh, I would have just uh, on the regular uh, administrative payroll. Right. And uh, uh, these differences were <clears throat> rampant in the years that both of us uh, were in the corporate or the educational world. And another illustration of this is what happened to Joan when she was at Arthur D. Little. 
So when I was at Arthur D. Little, um, I was the only female um, member of the professional staff in marketing. Let's say there were around 40 or 50 of us. And, um, and actually, someone who had been in my class at Smith College was a secretary there. And there was a big gulf between the two groups. And when I was a senior at Smith, um, someone uh, from the career office came in and gave us a lecture and said, even if you're a wonderful typist, and I was a very good one, um, don't let anyone know who interviews you for a job that you know how to type. So I took that to heart, and I never revealed anywhere. If they had asked me directly, I would have told them that I could type. So every one of my, almost every one of my jobs was created just for me. I interviewed and persuaded them to take me on and that sort of thing. Uh, and I, uh, of course, I, I typed, but I never, as I say, revealed it to them. So at Arthur D. Little, I was the only um, female professional staff member. And um, they told me after about a year or so there that they would review me. I, my salary was very low and my um, uh, even low for the professional staff. And I, my goal was to receive $5,200 a year. I thought that would be a princely sum. And so months went by after the one year was up, and they never um, changed my salary. So I made an appointment with the um, with the person in the man, uh, Hamilton James, in charge of the department and in charge of the professional staff. And he basically told me that um, he that not only could I not have a raise. And I was working side by side doing similar types of things to men in the department who were, you know, getting much more money. Um, he said he would demote my salary, which he did. He would uh, decrease my salary because I didn't go to the man named Bruce, who was in charge of the secretaries, um, to talk to him about a salary increase. And I, my reaction, I burst into tears. So I um, also... Uh, uh, well, I went home and told my father about it, uh, and I was, I don't think I was married at this point. In fact, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and his advice was, they probably know they've made a terrible mistake, and they put me on probation for three months, and he said, just go along with it. In the end of that time, I think they will increase your salary, and that's what I did. I would not have acted this way today, but, but, uh, but in 1960-whatever-two, or three, I did. And how about bringing your own chair? Oh, yeah. And then I found out that secretly all the men were meeting on a regular basis in the department and not telling me that they were having these meetings. So I asked this same Hamilton James, I'd like if I could go to the meetings. And he said, okay. And I said, fine. When is the next one? He told me when and where. And I went to it, and they purposely scheduled it to start 45 minutes before I got there, so I would have to come in late, and they had no, not a single chair for me to sit in, and so I had to go out to another office, get a chair, and carry it in myself and sit there, but I, but I did go to the meeting, and that was pretty humiliating, uh, and it was also so strange because I was in such demand for many of the men in the room who wanted me to work on their cases, and yet when it came to this meeting, no one lifted a finger or or um, you know chose to uh, to help me. And th this is the same time when I was a student at the Harvard Business School, and the only time we had a woman ever come to our class was a particular case that they had in marketing 
which had to do with hemlines for the next fashion season. And so they invited all of the women, or uh, yes, I believe all of the women uh, from uh, the sister course to this at the Harvard Radcliffe Program for Business to come to the meeting. And we had this ridiculous situation where uh, they came in and said a few words about the hem lengths, and, and really it was the fellows in the class who had been in retailing or were going into retailing who had much more uh, interesting stuff to say <laughs> than some of them did. We have one more yeah. minute. No more minutes? Okay. okay. I just wanted to say one last thing that was very interesting, Ronald. Um, one of the most gratifying things happened just before I retired from being the director of the PhD program in health policy at Harvard, as well as the undergraduate program there. Um, they decided to develop a prize within our program, and the prize is called the Joan P. Curhan Citizenship Award because they felt, the faculty members felt that I was very instrumental in developing a real community in a program that was very, very successful. And um, ever since then, each year, they have given out a prize, sometimes to more than one student a year, uh, for the student who has contributed the most to the community of the PhD program. And that really was, was a, a treasured experience for me. And just to bring this to a close, um, uh, I will interject one thing in my life that shows how simpicato Joan and I have been over these years. Uh, it was last, uh, well, the f Sunday night, I believe. No, Friday night, of course. It was last Friday night when I was uh, invited to present the Ronald C. Curhan Award to the senior who had done the most for Hillel at Boston University, where I taught for 30 plus years. Um, to give out that prize. And so I think you can see that uh, what goes around comes around. Joan delightfully has the prize in her name at Harvard, and uh, I have a, sort of an equivalent or comparable, at least, award at Boston University. Uh, thank you very much for listening to these remarks. Uh, you can see what happens to Joan when she gets wound up. She went on and on about her uh, lifetime experience, and I can assure you that between each line, there's another story to be told. Thank you very much. And I thank you very much also.